0: okay well here we ha- here we are another episode with carl uh you know funny story i was actually thinking about messaging carl and then carl's butt decided to call me <laughs> he put that with me uh, on uh, social media but um yeah it's been eight months since we lasted an episode and it, where we left off was uh we did, we did an episode on china russia relations and um eight months ago so and we left off i think carl you uh you said where uh the prc got founded
1: yeah um so so last time we basically covered the sino russian and then later sino-soviet relationship from the beginning all the way till 1949 the end of chinese civil war and founding of the prc and it's a fundamental sea shift in the relationship between China and Soviet Union because now China is a communist country. Um, but just prior to the Chinese Civil War, Soviet Union actually signed a whole series treaty with the Chinese government under Zhang kai She, And that was a Sino-Soviet Friendship Treaty of 1946, which <clears throat> stipulated that um, Soviet Union will retain all uh the former Tsarist Russian privileges in Manchuria including um joint holding of um joint ownership of the China Eastern Railway that runs through Manchuria as well as leasing the port author, uh, aka um the city of Dalian on the tip of the Autun peninsula at the very southern end of manchuria as a soviet naval base you know continue the the old, the the old russian tradition and but once the chinese civil war is over uh china is now a brothers brotherly socialist nation uh soviet union uh, representative uh told the chinese uh delegate that now now that china is communist the soviet union no longer has a need to maintain a military base in China. Uh, and so this starts a series of neg- negotiations that ended in um, the transfer of ownership of China Eastern Railway from Soviet Union to China, and the Soviet Navy withdraw from, uh, from the city of Dalian. That was completed by 1955. Uh, the, the city of Dalian was fully returned into to the sovereignty of of People's Republic of China. So this is, begins as the decade long Sino Soviet honeymoon period. Nineteen fifty is a is a Sino Soviet uh, honeymoon period. Uh, the two sides cooperated on many fronts. Uh, for example, the Soviet in during the Chinese Civil War uh, actually since nineteen forty four. Soviet had supported the Uyghur and Kazakh uh, communists in Xinjiang uh, to form their own separate government in in the three district of northern Xinjiang. Uh they was first called uh, the second East Turkestan uh Republic and then later they uh, uh they changed the name into the uh you know three district government and um, after the the Chinese Civil War and the Communist victory, the Uyghur and Kazakh Communist-led government in northern Xinjiang they agreed to join together with Mao's government uh, to be part of the PRC, and and so <clears throat> for the first time, uh, for the first time, almost forever, you know, China enjoyed uh, peace on its northern frontier uh for, you know the the, the Sino-Soviet frontier stretch from uh Amur River in northeast all the way into Central Asia, you know, when Xinjiang where Xinjiang borders Kazakhstan, uh Kyrgyzstan, uh Tajikistan, etc. All the Soviet uh Central Asian republics. And and also Mongolia is also um uh, uh you know the the Republic People's Republic of Mongolia is also a communist country, and under the basically the Soviet guidance, so all uh, the Ch- Chinese northern frontier um, had he was was at peace for a long time, um, and Mao actually famously this is also shape, this is when the Cold War between Soviet Union and United States is shaping up. And Mao famously said, "Well, you know, we're not going to be neutral here. We're going to be, dao. Uh, you know, we will lean to or one side, and that side is Soviet Union. And and so, so Soviet Union in in 1950s, they, they sending a lot of um... Mao. Actually, visited Moscow in the 1950s. So, you know, one of the, I think the one of the few, maybe the only only." The first um, trip abroad ever by Mao uh, was to Moscow to meet with Stalin um, to negotiate the new Sino-Soviet treaty and to uh, get a lot of the Soviet financial aid for reconstruction of China after the Civil War. Uh, it was a very fruitful meeting and the Soviet Union agreed to send a lot of the Soviet engineers experts into China. and to help china build uh to help china to embark on its industrialization <clears throat> so so 1950s <clears throat> things were really good uh, in in fact uh, starting from 1950s um until 1980s until the time i went to junior high in china in in chinese uh starting from chinese junior high we that's when we start required to take a foreign language um, at the time there was two just two choices English or Russian um, and and back then you actually don't get to choose <laughs> they assign you <laughs> they randomly assign you uh, to a a um, a language course so so my dad when he grew up uh, my dad was born right before the Japanese surrender uh, he was born in 19 he was born in June Uh, No, he was born in July 1945, like one month, just one month before the Japanese surrender. So he went to school um, after the PRC was founded in the 1950s. And when he he uh, started, when he studied in school, he was chosen to study the Russian track. So he learned Russian. All the way through high school to college you know he didn't learn english until um until he was self he self-taught himself english in college but throughout high school and and, and college his foreign language was russian
0: did he ever teach you russian
1: uh no he never teach me russian actually i (laughs) i learned russian in u.s um okay i was uh uh, this was like 1995, uh, my senior year in in uh, in IMSA in Illinois Math and Science Academy. At the time, you know, we have to take foreign language electives, right, for two years, and I already taken Japanese for a year and a half, and I wanted to try something new. Um, at that time, I was pretty sure I'm going to be uh, following the engineering track, so I thought, you know, Japanese and German could be potentially useful for engineering career so uh you know i already learned japanese i'll I'll try german and then i noticed my schedule course you know my the only course class i have i have in my senior year in in the morning is a german class and the german class starts at eight o'clock (laughs) a.m and i realized wait a minute if i drop the german class i will have no class in the morning and then uh, then I realized the Russian class starts at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. <laughs> so <laughs> the choice was clear. <laughs> and that's how I ended up uh studying either a semester or a year of Russian. But but right now I, I gave up uh, I gave back most of my Russian uh language skill to my to my teacher Yulia. <laughs> I, mm. I only know like very basic, uh basic words. I know how to say uh, uh, <laughs> I know Russian language. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, so I um so back to the Sino-Soviet yeah, relations,
0: sorry. <laughs>
1: <in> the 1950s. <laughs> and um the 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 relationship was really good. Um, the, the Soviet Union sent a lot of um financial aid um, as well as uh, military aid, uh, you know, because you have to remember, um, soon after the PRC founded, uh, Korean War broke out. You know, in 19, June, nineteen fifty, and um, uh, Stalin cabled Mao. You know, uh, after, especially after the U.S. intervention into the Korean Civil War. Uh, U.S. led the so-called UN forces uh, to land on Incheon and then uh, push across the 38th parallel into North Korea. And at that point, uh, Stalin cable Mao and uh, expressing the wish that China would join the side of DPRK to push back uh, the U.S. forces. And uh, so the, the deal is the Soviet Union will provide the military equipment, and they will provide the air force air cover. Um, it, it, it didn't work out exactly because when uh, the Chinese People's Volunteer Army entered Korea, uh, you know the the Soviet supply the Soviet equipment hasn't arrived yet, so. In the first year, you know, they fought with the equipments from the Chinese Civil War, you know, captured American equipment from the nationalist forces and the, the Jap the leftover Japanese weapon from uh World War II arsenal. Um and, and and but but you know Soviet Union did help equip uh the newly formed People's Liberation Army with uh with new equipments, including um heavy weapons like uh heavy weapons like tanks etc didn't get to you didn't get used in Kore- korea but um, you know soviet did transfer technology so so China's were able to um have their own manufacturing lines produce uh tanks and airplanes and jet fighters based on the soviet design um you know soviet union even provided nuclear uh uh Nuclear physicists to assist in China's nuclear program uh, in the 1950s. So it was a full-on cooperation between the two sides. Um, but the 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 honeymoon period would last about 10 years from 1950 from, you know 19, basically from 1949 the founding of the PRC to the end of the decade. Um, what? change though uh is um, you know a lot of older folks like my my father's generation uh they still remember like Soviet experts that came to China in the 1950s um you know helping China to build factories Etc and there was a great deal of te- 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 techno- te- techno- technological transfer right um the Soviet Union helped China to build design and build the first bridge across the Yangtze River. Um uh help China build its uh build up its heavy industry, its uh defense indi- industry etc. 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 In fact, in 1950, um when Jiang kai sheks forces withdrew from mainland China, they still maintain a series of offshore island bases. Uh, from from the base in Zhousan Island, which is just south of Shanghai, the KMT Air Force will continually bomb bomb the city of Shanghai well into uh, the spring of 1950. Uh, one particular case was uh, February 1950 was was pretty bad. the, the, the KMT uh, Air raid took out the power plants in Shanghai, you know, plunging the city into darkness. And so at that time, PRC did not have uh, its own Air Force, so they actually had to ask for help from Soviet Union. They, they um, made a secret agreement to allow the Soviet Red Army Air Force to station themselves in Shanghai and to, to defend Shanghai from the KMT Air Raid. And this actually prompted this, um, and the Soviet also helped uh, China set up radar around Shanghai. So after that, the U.S. advisor to Jiang Kai She, Charles Cook, told told Jiang Kai She like, look, you, you you don't have the air superiority anymore around the um, area of Shanghai after the Soviet air air force moved in, and, and your base in Zosan Island is now a liability. So so Jiang kai she actually had to pull back uh, 120,000 troops from the tsosan island to taiwan because uh, because the intervention of the soviet union and you know shanghai was not bombed uh, after that after after summer of 1950 you know shanghai's sky was finally safe and then those later those soviet pilots would um, go to go to Korea, you know, participate in the Korean War. They would dress up in the uniforms of China Chinese uh, People's Volunteer Army. Uh, the 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 Soviet MiG fighters would be painted in the Chinese uh, People Liberation Army colors, and they would participate participate in the secret air war in northern Korea. There's a whole area of North Korea that was called uh MiG corridors uh you know like the and and the Soviet Union also helped to train the first generation of the Chinese air force pilots uh you know the, in the in the during the Korean war um and um and but they the, the Soviet air force did most of the heavy lifting in the beginning stage of the war uh but they did not push across 38th parallel they mostly stayed around the the border area between Soviet Union, North Korea, and 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 China, in a in a more defensive posture, and they did not cross thirty eighth parallel to go to, going to South Korea, and and so <clears throat> it was a full on cooperation, military, industrial, cultural. There was a lot of um, you know Russian fashion was in vogue in the nineteen fifties. You know, like the at that time the you know the, the the, it was fat. The in Russia, it was like the the kind of the color patterned. Uh, it was uh, like a checker patterned uh, clothes. It was the dress that was really popular. And so, you know, that was uh, the the you know the the the, Ch- the Chinese youth back then in 1950s looked to Soviet Union for fashion trends, and and there was a lot of cultural exchange. Chinese students were sent to Russia to study. Um, uh, in hope of bringing back knowledge, and that would change in in late 1950s after Stalin's death. Um, so after Stalin's death, there was a uh, the the Khrushchev's uh, secret uh, denouncement um, of of Stalin, and this was actually uh, through. Quite a shock into the communist world because up to that point, the, 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 pretty much all the communist world looked up to Stalin as a uh, as a great figure who led Soviet Union through World War II against uh, Nazi invasion. Right. So, so Khrushchev's denouncement uh, of Stalin uh, created a, quite a stir. But at the same time, what, you know Khrushchev felt he need, he also needs some external support in particular he need the uh, support of china so during khrushchev's uh, reign he actually uh, increased soviet aid to china um in the later half of the 1950s and there, there were more joint projects uh, industrial projects in china uh sino-soviet joint ventures um, but at the same time, the the ideological split is starting to happen between China and Soviet Union. Uh, in the internal report, um, it, it, externally, uh, Mao still expressed solidarity with Soviet Union. But it, in the internal meetings, Co- Co- Communist Party of China meetings, Mao has <coughs> criticized Khrushchev for its uh, public... Denouncement of Stalin because he said this is uh, dealt a blow to the prestige of the communist uh, world communist movement, and and what Khrushchev has done was not wise, and the the the, the ideological differences would sharpen because uh, Soviet Union still see itself as the leader of the world communist movement and in in 1950s when the in 1949 when people's republic of china was first founded there was agreement um between soviet union and china that prc people's republic of china would take the lead um in the east asian affairs you know they they would take the lead in charge of Promoting the communist cause in East Asia, particularly in Korean Peninsula, in Indochina, uh, Southeast Asia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And but by, by by um by the time Khrushchev became the leader of Soviet Union, um, basically Mao did not respect Khrushchev. <laughs> Mao just thought, "Who is this bad, Who is this?" Buffum, who is uh, uh you know, has this pretension of leading the world communist movement, and uh, and <clears throat> but the 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 split didn't happen right away. It didn't break into open. But but Mao felt you know <clears throat> Mao had respected Stalin because Stalin led uh, the great patriotic war in Soviet Union against Nazi Germany, but. Uh, Mao did not respect Khrushchev, and he felt Khrushchev is is underqualified to be the leader of the the world communist movement, and and he did Mao says, certainly didn't want to play second fiddle to Khrushchev, but <clears throat> at the same time Khrushchev probably wasn't aware of um, you know where, where China stands. They still. Soviet Union act in many ways like its older brother in the relationship and in the late 1950s uh <clears throat> Khrushchev approached Mao to talk about the joint um to talk, talk about the joint combined sino-soviet uh navy um uh, especially a joint naval station at Dalian now this is um very alarming to the Chinese leaders because China, through its century of humiliation, is very sensitive <clears throat> to the issue of sovereignty, right? <clears throat> and one of the f- major achievements it was uh, it considers its renegotiation of treaty with Soviet Union in the early 50s that led to the Soviet Union giving up on the ownership of China Eastern Railway and also Led to the Soviet Navy withdraw from city of poor city of Dalian. Now Khrushchev wants the Soviet Navy to come back to China, and you know even though it was um, you know it was presented as a joint uh, joint defense effort, but from the Chinese side it seems like okay Khrushchev just uh, want to go back to the Tsarist Russian ways when. Dalian was uh, the headquarters of the the Russian uh Far Eastern Fleet and uh, uh, Mao was not on board with that uh, you know I'm, you know so it's, and because uh <clears throat> and this this also this is the beginning of this schism between um between China and Soviet Union um because first of all like Mao felt that Khrushchev didn't respect China's sovereignty that's why it's trying to impose its will on China you know to, to try to reinstate a naval naval base a foreign military base in China you know China is very sensitive about those uh but, but about about issue of sovereignty and, and they did not agree to have to to ho- play host to the Soviet navy again and and that led to a cooling down of the relationship and, and further afield um there was also um uh, you know like the um there was also a, a series of diplomatic blunders um that led to the increased misunderstanding on the both sides and the, the so the soviet split is finally coming emerging out of the private into open by early 1960s. Um one one of the um you know one one of the reason that prompted Mao to launch the great leap for great leap forward in late nineteen fifties is actually because Mao wanted to industrialize China quickly. So China would uh, no longer have to rely on the Soviet Union as the suppliers of heavy machinery and in, uh, industrial goods and and you know China, Mao felt that you know China needs to industrialize quickly to um become its own power instead of a say like a client state or appendage of Soviet Union and and unfortunately, you know the, the the whole the the way the great leap forward was carried out was flawed, and and China entered into a period of uh, um a, a difficult years after 1958. And on top of this was the Sino-Soviet split, um, uh, and you know Soviet Union again side basically sided with India during the. Um, Sino-Indian War of 1962.
0: I have a quick question. Yeah, go ahead. So, when uh, the Great Leap Forward does that have any correlation, or is it synonymous to the Cultural Revolution, or are they separate events?
1: That's separate. Separate. Okay. So the the Great Leap Forward uh, was launched in 1958. Um, it, it goes from 1958 to um, you know 1962, and cultural revolution started in 1966 so so so, so the great leap forward preceded the cultural revolution by a uh, period of 8 years and and it was <clears throat> it, it was a very difficult time in china the you know there was uh widespread famine uh, my my dad Went to college in 1963. So even in 1963, he he remembered when he um he, he my my dad's hometown is in Hainin, Zhejiang, all right? But he applied to he he applied and got accepted to Xi'an Jiaotong University in Xi'an in the western China. So he had to um, at that time there was no bridge across the Yangtze River. Yeah, and so he had to go to Nanjing and then take a ferry boat to cross Yangtze. And he remember seeing a lot of the famine refugees from the north crossing the Yangtze River to the south. So that, it, was, it was difficult times in China. And on top of that, uh, because of the Sino-Soviet split, um, accru- the, the, the relationship went from cooling off to... Um, the, the, to a full full on ideological split, and the, you know, so, Soviet Khrushchev then recalled all the Soviet experts. You know, halted all the uh, joint Sino-Soviet joint project. You know, this is the uh, the the one of the joint project was um, was the bridge across Yangtze River. You know, first at Wuhan. Uh, the the first Yang the first bridge to build across Yangtze River was to be at Wuhan, the city of Wuhan, and then the second one in Nanjing. <clears throat> but and because the Soviet uh, withdrew, the engineers left. They took took with them the the the, the plans and all the. Uh, it, it was a very difficult time, and but but China managed to finish the bridge, uh, in Wuhan, and they they built, uh, Nanjing. Yangzi Bridge on their own in the 1960s. You know, so at that time it was um, heralded as a great success. Um, and it, but but in 1963, when when Dad my Dad went to college, there was still no no bridge over Yangzi in the in Nanjing, so he had to take a ferry boat. And and there was a <clears throat> at that time there was a it was a very difficult period. Um, a lot of the pro- industrial project were abandoned um and um uh, you know the 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 sino-soviet uh joint nuclear program of course that went bunk the <laughs> soviet nuclear ph- yeah, physicists they took their plans with them um so china had to <clears throat> rely on them uh, their its own indigenous talent to continue with the nuclear program which uh, did come to into fruition in 1964 and but it, overall it was a it was a very difficult time in China it was uh the, the aftermath of the the failed uh, great Leap forward and also the sino-soviet split uh you know it was a fully scaling a scale back of the industrialization effort in the 1950s and and this in many ways these uh, these things will pave way for a Cultural Revolution in 1966. Um, and in in, in uh, and and this really like this is not just a personal personality conflict between Khrushchev and Mao, but it's also um, because both sides are trying to be the leaders of the world Communist movement. Um, you know, and the Mao felt Khrushchev does not have the talent or the stature to be the leader. And and Mao didn't want China to be like the Soviet Union's little brother, right? And and that this is this is really the root of the the issue, and and it, a lot of the way that the the Soviet leaders carried out, um, it kind of ignores the the, the at that time the, the Chinese sensitivity towards its own sovereignty issues, um, but it, it's it's. Uh, <clears throat> It, it it's it's pretty tragic the sino I would say the sino Soviet split because, um it, it, in a way it also pushed back China's own development for for decades um uh, you know when when suddenly all that a lot of the joint sino Soviet industrialization project were were rolled back in China uh, a lot of the ties were cut you know like the Whereas previously there was a lot of people to people exchanges between both sides. That all stopped by 1960s. And anybody with the with Russian connection actually became uh came under suspicion of being a Soviet spy. Um and and even uh you know people of Russian ethnicity in China including. So this this was a difficult time. Um I have a question. Go ahead.
0: So you know, the, obviously, the perspective you're telling me is that Mao and other uh, party members didn't want to be Russia's little brother. What? How did the Russians respond to this? I mean, because I would, I would imagine, like from communist to communist, this dialogue, the Russians should understand this, you know, especially since Russia has a settler history in the past. Like they, they should, they, they kind of talk about this you know, the settler colonial question a little bit to a point. I mean, did, did the Russians ever respond to this? Or were they, because it kind of sounds like they were kind of like thick headed on this issue when the Chinese, in my point of view, perspective, they had a a really good point.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's ideological clash on top of cultural clash. I mean, but from Russian perspective, they, they're seeing themselves, okay, we are giving generous, generous aid to China, you know, transfer of technology, uh funds, etc., you know, they feel China is being ungrateful. Um whereas uh from the Chinese perspective, uh they they felt the Russians are being overbearing. Um they're acting like uh you know, you know, they're 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 acting very arrogantly in a way similar to uh like a lot of the colonial powers that China had experienced um uh, you know they, they uh, with you know would often impose their uh, decision without consultation with the locals, and um, you know they felt that you know they know this, the, the older brother knows the best, etc. Um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. I mean
0: it's
1: it's 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 a it's a because the the the, the soviet honeymoon in 1950s kind of papered over a lot of. Previously, differences um, on both sides. You know, like one thing is, uh, you know, the the later border issue will become a problem. But in nineteen fifties, the Sino-Soviet border was actually unguarded. Uh, You know, I read memoir of people in uh, in, on the Amur River um, between on the border between Soviet Union and, and and China. At that time, the fishermen on both sides would regularly cross uh to the other side to exchange gifts um you know the the, they would say the soviet border guard back then they were very friendly they will exchange you know they will exchange uh, give the gift them with um they will give the soviet border troop with cigarettes and they will give them the 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 soviet uh they will give give the in return gift them caviar and stuff like that but when the political problem at the top uh you know became unresolved. This all the other issues that previously wasn't issue suddenly became an issue. You know, one issue was a border. Uh you know the the, the Sinos the the, the China Russia border was in many parts is undemarcated. Um and and also you know it it from from China it kind of recalls that history of humiliation because originally um the first china russian treaty uh treaty of nerchinsk uh, signed in 1680s uh already demarcated the border um but then in during the second opium war Russia Tsarist Russia took advantage of the fact that the 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 joint Anglo-French force were sacking Beijing, so they um, offered to mediate between China and, and Britain and France. And in return, they demanded the land north of Amur River and yisto Usuri River. And that was, uh, so that became the new border after 1860s. And then, but there's a lot of uh, islands in, the, in those rivers that were, um, you know, it's not clear, the, the, the ownership is not clear. You know, generally the, the rule is you follow the main uh, the main flow of the river and then you divide it into half. And then in 1920s, in 1929, the Manchurian warlord, Zhang Shui he launched a failed bit to try to risk the control of china eastern railway in manchuria from the soviet control and soviet responded militarily and and, uh, and also took over uh, took over of uh, some islands in the in the in the amur river that had previously belonged to china um, and again th- this these kind of the border issues was was not a, a really an issue in the 1950s honeymoon period because at that time like i said most of the borders that were unguarded um you know where there are patrols the, the the patrols on the both sides were very friendly to each other but but when the two side uh the relationship deteriorated the territorial issue suddenly became uh, became a forefront issue, um, and and there were border clashes, skirmishes happening all along the Amur River and Ussuri uh, River in the 1960s, and that c- culminated um, in the the Sino Soviet clash on the uh, on a Ussuri uh, River islands. Um, in nineteen sixty, I think nineteen sixty nine, um the, the 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 whereas previously the two the border uh the border patrols from both sides will fight with fists and sticks. Uh, but but in 1969 was particularly serious because the, the uh, you know f- for the first time they were they were using heavy weapons. You know. Russia actually, um, Soviet Union actually deployed tanks um, and artillery, and, and and China responded in kind. Uh, one Soviet tank was sunk, uh, you know, was uh, stuck in the in the ice in the Wusuri River. It was got towed back to Beijing. Uh, today it still sits in the Beijing Military Museum, and then and then China we re- um, I forgot what what model was this was this T sixty two the the so China reversed and reverse engineered the, the Soviet tanks. Um, <laughs> so back in the nineteen fifties, right when I talk about, there was a lot of. Um, Joint project, a lot of the technological transfer. So, so China actually gained a license to produce a lot of the Soviet weapons, like the jet fighter, uh, from from tanks to artillery to to jet fighters, and and the the result of the Sino-Soviet split is a, a stop of this flow of technology from uh, Soviet Union to China. So, so China had to. Rely on its own talent to to innovate based on uh, the knowledge that gained, the gleaned from working with the Soviets um, uh, prior. And, and, and the Sino-Soviet split is really um, a, a quite complicated issue. It's not just uh, uh, like a personality clash between Mao and Khrushchev, although that that played a role. Um, it's also you know the, the China's its own anxiety not to be subjugated to another foreign power and and and, and you're, you're correct you know uh, Soviet Union perhaps could could have been more attentive to these concerns but that did not happen uh you know from, from the Soviet perspective you felt like it was very generous to toward China and China is just being ungrateful and
0: and the reason I, I say just... that, sorry, can I say something? Go ahead. The reason I say that's because you're right, you know, you're right thinking about, you know, uh, the colonization, colonization of China and also the, the Russian history of pushing eastward and colonizing, you know, um, all the way to Alaska, right? And I know I have spoke to some Alaska natives and they saw Russians as colonizers, you know, so I mean. And hearing all of this, to me, it does sound like Russian arrogance. I know the Russians also had ties to Europe. Some of the royalty uh, were, you know, uh, related to other ro- royalty in Europe. So I think, you know, China was. I should. I mean, if I were China, I would have been uh, felt the same way. I just think that the Russians, uh, you know, <laughs> they fucked up by by not listening to the Chinese, and ultimately the. The Marxist project, I mean, obviously the China the, the Chinese model last is lasting longer than the Soviet Union. So, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, I mean, even d- during Soviet Union, like Russian chauvinism is still a thing, right? I mean, like Stalin wrote about it. <laughs> the Russian communist leaders have have warned about, uh, you know the the you know the chauvinism uh, issue but but it still existed and it, it did come across in the deal they're dealing with um like the Asian people uh including Chinese and, and and sometimes that that might felt grating to you know especially uh the Chinese who had to deal with uh the different overbearing foreign powers on its own territory and 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 um that historical memory combined with um kind of the ideological differences that was developing between Soviet Union and China at the time um and and, and because Mao wanted to um you know Mao felt that this was a time to continually push for Revolution especially in the in the third world countries in um he felt that the time is ripe in the kind of anti-colonial national liberation movement following World War II to 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 follow through to push through the, the, the communist movement. Whereas Khrushchev at uh, in in late fifties early sixty, he's trying to reach a détente with the West. So they can concentrate on developing Soviet Union, you know, socialism in one country Um, uh, that you know that that's one area of the conflict, because for 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 Mao Mao's priority was liberation of Taiwan right and also supporting the Communist movement in rest of East Asia and Southeast Asia, whereas uh, whereas whereas Khrushchev thought. Uh, now maybe uh, we can sit down and talk with the uh, you know U.S. and NATO and uh, and reach reach, reach a détente, um, and, and that's that Mao saw that was kind of. Uh, Betrayal of the the the, the Chinese uh, national liberation because they you know Taiwan at that time was basically under the U.S. occupation and and the, the Mao felt that that Khrushchev was ready to give up the struggle and uh, you know to to put a hold on the on, on supporting the the worldwide communist movement and, and there there is a whole wide. Uh, range of ideological differences that was emerging at the time. And on um, overlaying those ideological uh differences is also the, the Chinese anxiety not to be uh yeah. be like a Soviet appendage, like a Soviet client. Um and 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 and, and it's it's very it's unfortunate because i think uh you know the, the the sino-soviet split did bring a lot of hardship to china it uh held back the chinese industrial uh development for decades and and uh and and then uh, you know as we said the, in 1969 uh, all the issues that formerly weren't issue now became a big issue like the issue of the border um, and the, when the, the when the armed conflict broke out on the Wusuri River in 1969 uh, in what over uh, what Chi, Chinese called Zhenbao the treasure island and the the, the Russian called the uh, uh, the Bolshevik Damansky Island and. And it was a serious military confrontation and the uh, rush soviet union was caught by surprise and so they then um they they did a they they thought a payback so they staged another um uh, skirmish on the on the border between uh, xinjiang and kazakhstan and so throughout 69 early 70s the the tensions were were continually escalating uh, you know you, the, the, the split happened to the point where at one point the Soviet diplomat approached the uh, United States and offered to do a joint strike on the Chinese nuclear installation <laughs> and this this was how serious the the, the, the Sino-Soviet split had became um, and 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 which allowed US to saw uh, to to exploit uh, this this you know they saw saw uh, this opportunity to leverage the split um, for for the U.S.'s own strategic interests and this is when Nixon and Kissinger decided to play the China card um, when they saw the Sino-Soviet split broke out in the open that led to the ping-pong diplomacy between U.S. and China and the nixon visit to china in the 1970 was it 71 or 72. um he actually very closely um just few years after the sino-soviet sp- uh, split became uh open military confrontation in 1969 and that led to the the sino-american uh reapproach uh and and the Nixon visit to China because the the U.S. decision maker then was uh, they wanted to play the China card against the Soviet Union. Uh, You know, at that time, the the focus of NATO is still Europe, right? They're still planning to fight a huge conventional World War II style battle in Europe against the Soviet Red Army. But they thought, okay, if we can ally with China, then, you know, then, the Soviet Union will face a two-front war, its soft underbelly will be exposed. You know all the the, the long line of um, Sino-Soviet border. So during the Cold War, um, after the Sino-Soviet split, Soviet Union actually stationed a nearly one million man arms Red Army all along the sino soviet and sino mongolian border because the uh, soviet union also had a defense treaty with the uh, people's republic of mongolia so all through china's n- uh, northern border you know stretching from uh from you know where china russia and north korea meets near the sea of japan all the way to stretching into Central Asia, into you know where Xinjiang meets Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. This whole area become militarized. Um and that also led to um uh this 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 would this would um led to rivalry uh within the communist camp so for example when during the Vietnam war both china and soviet union supported vietnam against um against the us occupation right and and then um both the a lot of the communist countries like vietnam and dprk north korea they try to stay neutral you know in the sino-soviet split they try to be friends with both but after um after a successful conclusion of Vietnam War when US forces was kicked out uh in 1975, and the um the I mean the Vietnam government faced a choice because at that time the Sino-Soviet split has has gone. Uh it, it was just too obvious to be ignored. Um they they they're basically the two sides are forcing the government of Vietnam to choose a side and the uh, the Vietnamese government chose Soviet Union. Well, I can't blame them because Soviet Union in nineteen seventy five had way more to offer to Vietnam um in both in terms of uh, military equipment and uh, financial aid and you know the help uh through its industrialization effort and and but the, but this of course, this led to the deterioration of ties between. China and Vietnam, which previously had been close, you know, previously, the the the, the ties between China and Vietnam during Vietnam War was described as uh, brother uh, comrades plus brother, right? Like, um, you know, my my mom even when she was growing up, like she remembered the song at the time was. Uh, uh China and Vietnam, the mountain connects with the mountain, water connects with water. Uh, but I have a question.
0: Go ahead. And that, that forceful decision making was made by the Russians, right? If I'm not mistaken. Are they the ones are they the ones that made Vietnam choose, or how was Vietnam put in a chance in a position where to choose between
1: Soviet Union. Well, and I I I wouldn't say just from the Russians because um, at the time um, the the communist camp was split, right? The communist camp was split uh, between the, the China camp and the Soviet Union camp, and and the, 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 the there was no reconciling of differences. I mean, the, the so uh, Soviet Union did made a clumsy attempt. And reconciliation in nineteen. Uh, so after Khrushchev got the de- uh, got thrown out through a coup, the coup leaders uh, in Soviet Union they invited the the Chinese delegate to visit Moscow. And during the <laughs> during the visit, um, one of the top punctuals of the Soviet leadership at the time, he approached the Chinese general He Long. Who led the Chinese delegation? He said, "You know, the Sino-Soviet split is basically a problem brought on by Khrushchev and Mao. You know, now we already got rid of Khrushchev. If you guys get rid of
0: Mao, then, then we can all sit down shit, and celebrate." That's stupid. Yeah, it's like a fucking stupid thing to say. What the fuck? And this, this, so,
1: so the Chinese side like, took this very, incident very seriously. Um, you know, Helong immediately reported to the Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai, who was in Moscow at the time, and the Chinese launched large uh, official diplomatic protests. And the the, <laughs> the Soviet leadership blame on the alcohol. They, <laughs> they said they said that the general. Uh, who who approached he He was under the influence alcohol he was just talking shit. it does not represent the official line of the soviet government but everybody know he that that, he was just testing waters right i mean but yeah but it it was poor go ahead and this only further increased the suspicion between the soviet union and china um you know that also led to the um you know you know this this kind of the pre led also led pave the way for cultural revolution because now like there's a lot of suspicions about people with Russian ties mm-hmm. with former Soviet background and like who they could be potential agent to sabotage um, sabotage the government you know to effect the regime change in China and and that was. You know, that was a missed opportunity that was that was a missed opportunity. And and after <clears throat> so, but in, in 1975, like I said, I, I don't envy uh, Vietnam for, for their de- decision because they, they made a rational decision. You know, Soviet Union In nineteen seventy-five, was very powerful. Uh, It was much more powerful than China, and they could offer way more than China could offer at the time. Um, Even though China did provide um, a lot of aid to Vietnam during the Vietnam War, including sending three hundred thousand PLA troops into Vietnam to man uh, air defense, uh, you know, because at that time the US was launching a, a, a genocidal air campaign to bomb everything you know to bomb vietnam into stone ages so china send its own um uh, <clears throat> send its uh send 300 000, uh strong pla force into north vietnam to man air defenses and to build railroad to um because all the railroad links to china were bombed so so the, the the chinese army engineers that work uh, Day and night to to repair the railroad to ensure the supplies will continue to come from China into Vietnam to support the the war effort, and and but despite despite all that, you know, Soviet Union is much bigger power. They could offer more to Vietnam, and then unite after 1970. And and also, um, Vietnam has its own uh, grievances against China because by 1975 you know nixon visit nixon and kissinger they all visited china in 1971 1972 right the, 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 it was in the the, kind, the china was became a de facto ally of the west in the anti-soviet camp and and this was before uh you know uh, uh, Vietnamese ca- recapture Saigon in 1975. So they, they when they saw Nixon and Kissinger went to visit China, they they felt a little bit betrayed by the Chinese leadership. They thought, hey, like we're still fighting a war down here. You're you're already talking, uh, holding banquets with the enemy, and and so so they you know they made the they decide to side with the Soviet, and then that led to. Uh, 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 China to support, um, you know, you know. Then there's a the, the, the spl- then there's a split between Vietnam and Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. You know, Vietnam. Vietnam previously they put Cam uh, Vietnam put Khmer Rouge in power in Cambodia. You know, pretty much it was the military power of Viet Cong um, Vietnamese uh, armed forces that overthrow the Cambodian right-wing dictatorship and put the Cameroon Rouge in power but the the Rouge they had their own um they had their own grievances against Vietnam because uh for historical reasons there's there's, there's this clash of um Cambodian nationalism and the vietnamese, vietnamese nationalism and the Cambodia then uh they came to China seeking support you know so after Vietnam um, decided to side with Soviet Union so this is why why China sided with with Cambodia and that further led to the 1979 uh uh Sino vietnamese War of 1979. Um, and, and the background of the war between China and Vietnam in 1979 is really about Soviet Union. It's really about the Vietnam siding with a, the with a Soviet Union. And, and China was feeling it was being surrounded by, you know, the Soviet Union was trying to contain China. You know, you already had stationed one million Red Army troops on China's northern border. Now it gains an ally in, in, in the South. Uh, and and in 1979 was a year where when uh Vietnam officially signed the 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 treaty of mutual defense with the Soviet Union um so so China decided to use this opportunity um to show that Soviet Union was powerless to to support Vietnam um and and you know also, the the official reason, of course, uh, is uh, is a uh, is a border conflict. Again, you know, China and Vietnam when during its honeymoon period, the the border issue wasn't an issue. But once the politics uh, became hostile, the, the relationship became hostile. Now the border issue became an issue, uh, and then there were border skirmishes. And then in 1979. The war broke out. And this this war is really on the China side, it's really about you know, Vietnam taking side with, with uh with the, with the Soviets. And 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 I remember um I was born in 1976, right? I, I don't remember much 1979, but my brother-in-law, who is a few years older than me, his family was living in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang at the time. And he remember in the 1979 a lot of the uh, people from xinjiang uh, near the border area were evacuated uh, they, they evacuated 300,000 people uh, from the sino russian border and all, all of northern border uh, of china in 1979 was put on high alert um in case in case of any uh, military response from the Soviet Union. Uh, but, but in the end, the, the Soviet did not um you know they, they, they did not take any military action against China. And and this 1979 is also when Soviet Union uh, invaded Afghanistan. And again uh, uh China demanded the 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 Soviet withdrew from Afghanistan. So, you know, so from China's perspective, it was seeing itself being strategically encircled by Soviet Union on all sides, you know, the you know, like once the Soviets sweep through Afghanistan and you know into Pakistan and, then then uh, you know and, and then on the south <clears throat> with a Soviet base in Vietnam, Soviet naval base in Vietnam, and China felt it was it was being surrounded. This is one of the decisions that led to China to side with US basically uh in the Afghan war against the Soviet Union. Um, um you know, I had talked about this, you know, CIA at the time, they sourced a lot of Chinese-made weapons uh because they wanted to hide their own fingerprint, and because China produced a lot of um uh, China produced a lot of soviet design weapons. You know, this is the legacy of Sino-Soviet cooperation from 1950s. Um, so, China, you know, a lot of the Chinese weaponry, you know, they have their heritage from originally from the Soviet design. So, CIA bought a lot of the um, Chinese weapons, shipped them via Pakistan uh, to the Afghan Mujahideens, and and. And uh and first at first the CIA tried to um, supply these weapons on the backs of Tennessee mules, but the Tennessee mules couldn't hack the climate in Afghanistan. Many of them died. so so then CIA bought a lot of mules and donkeys from uh, from Xinjiang in China because Xinjiang is just next door to Afghanistan. So they do have these donkeys and mules driven. Uh, at that time China, also, build a road connecting China and Pakistan, the Karakoram um, Highway, uh, and so <laughs> CIA will buy uh, t- uh, lots of donkeys and mules from Xinjiang, have them driven from Xinjiang to to Pakistan, and then then carry these Chinese weapons on their on the mules and donkeys back from Pakistan into Afghan. Af- Afghanistan to support the Afghan Mujahideens, um, and this the CIA actually maintained a listening station in Xinjiang in the nineteen eighties. That's what that's how crazy it was back then. Uh, the listening station's uh, main uh, objective was to uh, spy on the Soviet nuclear tests in Central Asia in Kazakhstan next door, and and uh, that was that was late 1970s and 1980s. Um and and what so the, the thing is by 1985, by the time I went to elementary school, the the tension already started to dial back. Because I remember um you know I would reuse the notebook that's used by my sister. My sister is four years older than me. And had, sometimes on the back of the notebook, you will have the quotes and and some memorable quotes and stuff. And one of the quotes on the back of the, my sister's old notebook, I remember, uh, it, it says, you know, we're, we're resolutely against the, the Soviet uh, social imperialism, uh, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. In 1985, I already felt that those kind of language was... <laughs> really archaic and strident. Uh, because in 1985, the relationship started to warm up. Um, and then in 1989, uh, so so at that then then Xiaoping under China made uh listed a group of conditions for normalization of ties between China and Soviet Union. Uh, it's a uh, pullback of the 1 million Red Army troops from the Chinese border. Uh, Soviet withdrew from um, from Afghanistan. Soviet uh, uh, Vietnam withdrew from Cambodia. and and that happened by 1989. Uh, by 1989 the Soviet withdrew from Afghanistan. Um, Gorbachev also ordered uh, the Soviet troops withdrew from the Chinese border um and uh v- Vien- Vietnamese troops withdrew from Cambodia and then in 1989 in the summer of 1989 Gorbachev visited then uh, visited China in um <clears throat> this this was the time this was really the, the the point of the end of the sino-Soviet split um when when Gorbachev came to China that was that was the beginning of the normalization of ties between China and Soviet Union. By then, it was a done deal. It was uh, the Sino-Soviet split was over by 1989. Uh, in, you know, in, in a lot of the American think tanks, uh, pundits, m- American media. They're always at they, they in 2022, they still talk like Sino Soviet split is going on, right? But you know, then again, you know, a lot of the American perception of China is still stuck in 19th century or the early 20th century. So I, it's not surprising that they they think uh, a, a geopolitical situation in 1970 is still continuing. But the Sino Soviet split it officially ended. In 1989, when Gorbachev visited China, you know, because by then all the Deng Xiaoping's condition for precondition for talks have all been uh, achieved. The the troops pulled back from the from the Chinese border. Soviet withdrew from Afghanistan, Vietnam withdrew from Cambodia, and and and. But the 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 tie actually got better even before 1989. Because I remember starting from 1986. Starting from 87 and 88, I'm starting to see Soviet movies on CCTV, on, on the Chinese state media uh, uh, TV networks, you know, it, 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 <laughs> because back then, you know, the, the importation of the Soviet cultural product. Pretty much all stopped by 1960 after the Sino-Soviet split. You know, in the early 80s, we we would have films from uh, friendly communist countries like Yugos- Yugoslavia. You know, Yugoslavia films and and uh, TV series from Yugoslavia were really popular in the early 80s. But then by mid 80s, we start seeing Soviet films. Uh, been showing for the first time again in China. You know, I remember seeing War and Peace. Um, that's a big one, and uh, um, all quiet. Uh, a uh, uh, quiet flow, Sedong. I've seen that one. Like, yeah, yeah. Those those are a really good ones. Um, and and the um, and and the 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 so so the the. I, and I remember my even in 88, even before Gorbachev came to Beijing, my friend's dad um, went to Soviet Union to study to, to like because the cultural exchange uh, began again. You know, one of the former pre- premier of uh, Kazakhstan, who is an ethnic Uyghur, actually, he actually went to study in Beijing in 1988. So so the ties were already starting to be restored by 1987 1988 when, when Gorbachev came to Beijing to meet Deng Xiaoping in 1989 that was just sealing the deal you know officially signaling the end of the sino-soviet split um and, and from then on the relationship has been surprisingly good because um you know because the you know there's no the Cold War is over. Uh, Cold War is over if effectively by 1989, um, Soviet Union itself would collapse in 1992. And after the the, the collapse of Soviet Union um that, that actually alarmed the the Chinese leadership because they they saw you know kind of the catastrophe that was happening in the post-soviet space and um, ever since, Collapse of Soviet Union. You know, the Chinese leadership use that as a as an example not to emulate. You know, they vowed, you know, they, the, the, the the kind of the regime collapse would not happen in China. Um, you know, Xi Jinping actually specifically referred to that in his in his talks that that China should not repeat the footsteps of the Soviet Union and and uh, uh but but the, the 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 whole geopolitical scene changed after uh after the fall of berlin wall um uh, and the cold war and collapse of the soviet union because uh you know u.s is always perpetually looking for our uh, enemy you know, in the 1980s 1980 so if 1950s was a sino-soviet honeymoon 1980s was uh Sino-American honeymoon, you know, because the U.S. needed China to balance the Soviet Union. But once the Soviet Union is gone, you know, China Pentagon is starting to hyping up the China threat because now they need, they need to justify <laughs> the trillion dollar budget. <laughs> and and that's in the early 90s when I started seeing a lot of articles um, about different think tanks. Uh, Talking about China threat, China threat. Um, even though, even though back in 1990s, you know, China was nowhere near as as powerful as it is today. Uh, it was still relatively a poor place. But you know, <clears throat> Pentagon already starting talk talk about talking up the China threat because they want to continue. Uh, they they want they want to resist, but defense budget cut after the uh in the aftermath of the cold war you know when everyone was expecting a peace dividend you know to to focus more on domestic issues like education infrastructure uh but you know pentagon still wanted its money so <laughs> that's when they start to hyping up china threat uh but but the, the in the, on the other side between the relationship between china soviet union and later china and russia continue to improve because there's no more uh, ideological uh there's no more ideological uh reason for the split anymore the the, the, the relationship be, uh, became a more practical geopolitical alignment because uh, after 9 in the in the 90s um you know even after the collapse of the Soviet Union US took the opportunity to expand nato eastward and this this was deeply resented by uh by the russian leadership and they they thought they try to balance the 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 us hyperpower by forming um an alternative pole of power this is when uh, i think it was when primakov uh, was a premier he proposed that Russia, China, and India should get together um, to balance out Washington, right? But this did, it, it didn't quite work out because uh, while Russia is on friendly terms with China, both China and India, India and China had some issues to, to remain <laughs> resolved. <laughs> they have their own border issue <laughs> to work out. Um, but one of the significant improvement in China Russia tie happened in 2000s uh late 90s 2000 under Jiang Zemin so Jiang Zemin finally uh they negotiated a treat a border treaty with Russia to fully demarcate the the formerly disputed border so by 2004 there's no more territorial dispute between China and Russia that all the border has been settled um several islands in the Amur River and Wusuri River that was fought over during the 1960s. Uh the Soviet Union have returned and, and was fought over between Soviet Union and China. Uh, and, and Russia has returned them to China. Uh, they, they returned several islands to China. And now there's no more territorial dispute. Uh, by, by uh, and following lead of Russia and China, all the Central Asian repu- re- republics all settled their own border dispute with China. So, so all of China's northern border now is fully settled. There's no more territorial dispute. That that remove a major irritant from the bilateral relationship between China and Russia. And ever since early 2000s, uh, you know, relationship has been getting better and better. Um, And especially since Russia is a major energy producer and China used to be, you know, People don't remember this, but China used to be an oil exporter (laughs) in the 1980s. You know, um, uh, because China discovered oil in the the Daqing airfield in uh, in, uh, the Daqing oil field in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and since then, because uh, China was still a largely agricultural country, China would in, in 1970s China would export crude oil to Japan and import chemical fertilizers because china back then didn't have the petrochemical plans to refine crude oil into uh, into petrochemicals into into chemical fertilizers and, and so china would export raw material you know uh, uh different different ore to an oil to japan and receive Finished goods, you know, like any uh, former colony, and and but through China's own open and reform, you know, by by nineties uh, and early two thousand, China uh, China finally industrialized and it changed overnight from an oil oil exporter to an oil importer, and and Russia has become one of the major oil suppliers to China you know just I think today Russia is probably the biggest oil exporter to China Um it's, it's Russia Saudi Arabia Iraq in that order I think I believe and and t- so today China Russia ties is actually at its most stable for a long time because both sides are now basing uh, their bilateral relationship on, upon mutual interest um, yeah you know, because, uh, you know, in the United States, a lot of people still talk Russia as kind of continuation of Soviet Union, but that's not true. You know, Russia is not a communist country. Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't been a communist country for for a long time, since 1992. That was like, what, 30 years ago?
0: I think and, there. Uh, I just want to say this like that. Isn't there the Shanghai Corporation Organization, which China and Russia are a part of? Yes. And um, BRICS, so too.
1: Yes, um, so so China and Russia they formed the Shanghai Cooperation, uh, and that started with participation of China, Russia, and all the former uh, Soviet Central Republics, so Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, uh, etc. And and they there this it's it's very interesting because. Um, people initially thought this is going to be some kind of a like a military alliance military block like NATO but in fact it's uh it, it's it's China and Russia play a very interesting complementary role uh in this arena because since s- particular in Central Asia Russia is still providing the security uh you know w- when there was a coup, uh, political instability in Kazakhstan recently you know Russian sending troops at the request of Kazakhstan government and uh you know Russia continues to do that in other places as well like Kyrgyzstan Tajikistan and 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 China do not send its troops abroad you know rarely send its troops abroad and w- what China does is use leveraging its uh, economic power it provides financial aid. Um, finance infrastructure projects, mm-hmm. and and this in this way, China and Russia uh, partnership work out um, perfectly. You know they're complementary to each other. They don't step on each other's toes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the same thing happened in Syrian war, right? Russia directly intervened militarily. Um, China provides. Support both diplomatically through the UN Security Council, but also through financial aid to the Syrian government. Um, so, so this is how the two sides work. Uh, you know, it, it it works quite differently from kind of the traditional military alliance like NATO that, that the West understands. Um, and and this, you know, I mean, yeah, I th- I think this is why there's a lot of wishful thinking uh, in the West about china and russia they're somehow still fantasizing you know there's still a a sino-soviet split going on today um which couldn't be further from the truth and yeah that ended more than 30 years ago, you know, (laughs) the the Sino-Soviet split ended in 1989, man, like whole generation of people have grown up since 1989, Uh, you know, people, people born at the end of uh, Soviet Union, they're, they're like 30 now.
0: (laughs) I do have a question, it's a little bit off topic from this Russia stuff, Um, because last time we spoke, was the last time we had like, you know, this recording was eight months ago. And since then, a lot has happened between the U.S. and China, specifically how there was the U.S. uh, um, that uh, had its ship uh, go through the Taiwan Straits and the Chinese Chinese said they're gonna do something. And, you know, everybody was saying that there's gonna be a war like do you what what are your thoughts on that do you think the us is like a paper tiger it's just it's just you know talking shit or do you think the us is actually going to eventually um uh, do military action on china i know there was a document too that said that uh that there was the, the window of going to war with china was like by 2025
1: yeah so I, I like to provide a historical perspective to people right because uh, this is why I love history. Um, you, during the Vietnam War in the 1970s, the whole South China Lake, whole South China Sea was basically American Lake. you know U.S had a uh, naval base in the Philippines they have they have base in in South Vietnam. US Navy operated the so-called Yankee Station which is uh, they had a group of aircraft carriers um, stationing a permanent presence in the Gulf of Tonkin which is a part of the South China Sea between Vietnam and Highland Island of China they they were camping out there they were just doing circles there to uh, to um to provide support for bombing missions against North Vietnam and U.S. went wherever it pleased, and this this situation is totally changed today in 2023, I, I almost said 2022, I just realized we're in the new year now, um, because today U.S. do so-called freedom of navigation through South China Sea, through Taiwan Strait, just to prove that they still can go there they still can have a presence whereas you know during vietnam war they pretty much own all that space you know we met very little challenges from china because china back then didn't have a blue water navy right they have a brown water navy a coastal defense and and um why is u.s doing this today um because u.s is in a way, uh, there's a very dangerous thinking on the part of the U.S. defense uh, establishment. They they think with the g- continuous strength of China, U.S. have a very small, limited time window to contain the rise of China. And they felt like, you know, given another ten years, the Ch- Chinese economy would reach escape velocity. You know, by that time it would be too late. You, even in 2033 you know even if us wanted to contain china you would not be able to for the simple matter of chinese economy would be uh, many times will, will will be much much larger than the us economy by then so the idea is today while us still all enjoy overwhelming military advantage at least on paper um to leverage all this U.S. military asset uh, to force China into sort of a conf- some some kind of confrontation, that will set back China's rise. Uh, and China plays this very cool and very rationally. They're not taking the bait. You know that's why when U.S. Air Force sent escorts to escort Nancy Pelosi into Taiwan you know China let that happen they didn't send yeah that any... was the other
0: one Nancy Pelosi yeah. yeah
1: yeah they didn't they didn't shoot down Nancy Pelosi's plane right they uh China didn't this does not take the bait uh, to, to, because China knows the time is on its side as long as chinese economy continues to grow uh you know, the relative of strength of china vis-a-vis the united states you know, it's continue to white the the China does not need to do something now, unlike the Pentagon thinking. You know, Pentagon felt it has to do something now because it feels like in the future uh, China will be too big to contain. Whereas China knows <laughs> you know, time is on its side, there's no hurry. Um and and this this is why U.S. is real really the is destabilizing force in East Asia right now because it's trying to actively provoke a confrontation against China, and and thankfully you know Chinese leadership is wrong uh, by much cooler and rational heads. Yeah. So that's my, yeah.
0: Yeah. I know everybody was beating the war drums on social media, like, oh, China and U.S. we're going to go to war and blah, blah, blah. But I think I'm kind of more worried about what's going on in Ukraine, because the U.S. is playing a very dangerous game, you know, sending mercenaries and uh, oh yeah, <laughs> equipment. Yeah, it's super dangerous. That shit scares the shit out of me, but that's just my own opinion. you know. I, I think... mean, that's a
1: full-on proxy war now, yeah. right? I mean, basically, full-on proxy war of the entire nato eu uh and us against russia and and the the, the crazy thing is that the europeans are going along uh, with it you know totally against their own interest um because you, you, they they still rely on russia for their energy supplies and and now they're uh, totally jacking up their own industry uh, because the, the the high energy price now now the german manufacturing sector are offshoring to u.s because because uh the war is uh causing the unsustainable price hike in germany and in europe and it's it's um i mean like this is this is, uh, that's why a lot of the people, you know, people in the West that lives in sort of a kind of media bubble, you know, they, they they do not realize in much the rest of the world, you know, the world outside of what's a so-called international community that consists of U.S. and its allies. Many parts of the world are, uh, they like to see Russia standing up to the West-led alliance, because they they felt like finally somebody is standing up to the West, and, and 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 this is this is something that that people who grow up, you know, brainwashed by the Western media propaganda fail to understand. Is like a lot of people in in Asia, Africa, Latin America. They would like to see the Western humble, the West humble by <laughs> by Russia, you know, in Ukraine. And and this, yeah, I, and I think it's happening now.
0: Yeah, I remember they had that, that vote to sanction Russia. The only people that voted were like Europe, Japan, and I think South Korea, I could be mistaken, but it was just like the international community, you know, overall were like, fuck the US. So yeah. it shows you the times are changing, and I agree. Even even in Latin America, Colombia voted in a left wing president. Brazil oh. voted in a left wing president. It's it's changing. the, the U.S. hegemony is going to just going it's just to me. It's going to be it's, you know the, the West is going to it's crumble. numbered. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Numbered. numbered. Yeah. So,
1: <laughs> I mean that this is why that's that's also the I think that the deep anxiety felt by the U.S. elite. You know they somehow they know their days are numbered <laughs> they want to prove they want to postpone the inevitable that's why they're trying to provoke um that's that's why they're waging this proxy war against russia that's why they're trying to provoke a war with china they want to they're just basically lashing out to preserve their uh station in the world to preserve their hegemony you know at the risk of dragging everybody and the entire world down with them but
0: yeah, I, that, I
1: go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead,
0: no, go ahead. I just feel like the US going to war with, with China is like not even possible. I mean, like the logistics of it is just like it has to go across the ocean, right? Um, I mean it has its allies, Japan and South Korea, but they you know, we it to me it just seems like even it would be in their worst interest to go against China, right? Um, but and I think it's I mean like I think it's the US is just flexing but I, I don't think it's going to bite. Everybody says the US wants to bite but I, I don't know man. I just think it's just it's, it's a it's like a paper tiger. It's you know the US is the um not as mean, strong
1: you- I mean right now China hasn't left a finger and you have F thirty-five dropping like flies. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like that mean the CIA uncovered the plot the Chinese plot to sit back and watch aggressively as US declines <laughs> and fall apart yeah. its all. <laughs> Yeah. So man, that's well, where
0: we are. Yeah. Well, I think you again. Don't don't log off when I stop recording. But thank you again, Carl, for coming on. Uh, as I said before, you know, uh, this series is because, you know, like the, the very first episode was, um, was to show there was a connection between colonization of Asia and China with the colonization of the Americas. But colonization of globally is tied. And so when we have China, which I think is a decolonial they decolonize from like the colonial you know of uh, people in that country it's a beacon for the world right to see what a, a country with its own people can, can can achieve and i think um people should realize the history of china and i i wanted i wanted to have you have you background for other episodes you know for i have other topics i want to talk to you about about in china but i think people need to realize that uh like there's a lot of propaganda especially now especially this last year uh, against china and i, I always tell people all, you always tell them to go to your um first go to your podcast the uh silk and steel podcast right and then at the same time check out the series because i mean there is like i said we have to learn about the misconceptions and the lies against china and counter it with the actual history
1: Thank you. Thank you for that plug. And and what you actually just stated, that's actually the official political slogan by the Chinese government. Um, the the community of common destiny for mankind. That is the that is a st- official stated foreign policy goal of the People's Republic of China to work towards a community of common destiny for mankind. So So there you go, we, you know, we are indeed all connected and and we actually need uh, in this time of the day to work together to make sure you know all of us all the humanity across the globe will still have a future, Um, you know, not being not being destroying a senseless nuclear war.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, gonna to stop recording right now. Thank you for coming.